This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, open them up, please, to Philemon. We are in a five-week series entitled, Few Words, Big Truths, investigating, meditating on the five books of the Bible that have just one chapter. And because they are so small, they tend to go unnoticed. And you may ask in response to that, well, is that, is that a big deal? Well, let me try to make a case for this. Uh, let's think about it this way, the food pyramid, which you learned in childhood has been used for years to help us understand what the human body needs to be healthy. I'm picking a number out of thin air. Let's say the human body needs 250 different kinds of nutrients. I have no idea if that's right or wrong or even close. But let's say it needs 250 different kinds of nutrients. When one of those, one or more of those, goes missing, what happens? You know, think about maybe the most infamous case of this. Scurvy due to vitamin C deficiency. That's a pretty serious deal. Uh, Osteoporosis, if calcium and vitamin D isn't properly dosed or absorbed. Uh, Maybe one we haven't heard of, something called beriberi. It's it's the language of Sinhalese. It means, I cannot, I cannot. Mostly confined to Asia, this is a severe nerve inflammation disease that makes doing the simplest tasks impossible. And it's caused by vitamin B1 deficiency. Now the list goes on and on and on. Now there are spiritual diseases we are prone to develop if we aren't dosed properly with all the spiritual nutrients God gave us in his word. When one of those goes missing, we can create spiritual diseases within ourselves, including if we skip over the ones we don't know much about, the little ones. This is one of the reasons we preach the way we preach at this church. We want to work through each book or chapter or passage or verse to mine for the nutrients. We want to make sure that we are dosing ourselves properly. Now today we will look at the book of Philemon. It's, uh, there's a uniqueness to this book. It's arguably the most personal book in the New Testament. Yeah, granted, Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, personal correspondence, but Those letters are more like instructions to younger pastors, maybe sort of a professional letter. Paul writes this letter, Philemon, not to a pastor, but to a regular follower of Christ, to his beloved brother. Some translations say, dear friend. So what would the great apostle Paul want to say to his dear friend? Let's read it. Let's see what he says. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, 
and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends, you, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There's a backstory to this we can piece together. Philemon was a wealthy Christian who lived in the city of Colossae, about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. And it seems that during Paul's three-year ministry stint in Ephesus, Philemon heard the gospel and was saved. And he began serving the church in Colossae, opening his home for a house church to meet there. At some point, one of Philemon's slaves, a man by the name of Onesimus, took off, absconding with some of Philemon's money and property. Now, a fugitive, Onesimus did what many fugitives do. He traveled to the most populous city to hide out. So his destination is Rome. Through extraordinary circumstances, which Christians call divine providence, Onesimus came into contact with the Apostle Paul and became a Christian. It's apparent that some amount of time elapsed because it seems Onesimus grew and became helpful to the imprisoned Paul's ministry in Rome. Now, Paul knew the situation with Onesimus needed to be addressed. Fugitive slaves could face the death penalty in Rome. And besides that, there were personal wrongs Onesimus had committed against Philemon that could not be ignored. 
So as much as Paul would have liked to retain the services of Onesimus, and perhaps part of the reason for this letter is to get Philemon to send him back, as much as he would like to have had Onesimus in his services, he sends, he sends him back to Philemon with this letter. Paul thus wrote this letter as an appeal to Philemon to appreciate the transformation that has occurred in Onesimus' life and to receive him back, not merely as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Now, most scholars say that because this book winds up in the canon, this whole thing, this whole endeavor was successful. That Philemon and Onesimus reconciled and they began a new chapter in their relationship with one another, a transformation of relationship. So we're going to look at the main tenets of this letter under three headings. We're going to look at the subversion of institutional injustice, the mending of relationships, and the embodying of the gospel. First, the subversion of institutional injustice. Now, because Onesimus was a slave, and because we live this side of the sordid antebellum slavery of the South, and I know you, inquisitive people... We've got to iron this out a little bit, otherwise you're going to be distracted through the rest of this message. We don't talk about this bit on slavery in the ancient world. So let me give you some information about this. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, speech, or clothing. Slaves came from all walks of life. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. At times, some destitute free people sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by the time they reached their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right to public assembly and they were not socially segregated. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom And their natural inferiority was not assumed. Now, after hearing this, one may come to the gross realization of the utterly inhumane and barbaric nature of slavery in this nation's history. Even pagan Rome did not treat slaves like they were treated here. Beyond that, one may legitimately ask, what was the difference between a free person and a slave in the first century? T.J. Wideman notes that while slaves were able to earn money, hold positions of authority, gather, purchase, or be granted their freedom, the slave had a total forfeiture of autonomy. In total dependency, they belonged to someone else, and their existence as a person was whatever their master chose to grant them. In short, slaves lacked the power of refusal. This is what makes applying the master-slave exhortations in the New Testament to employer-employee relationships a bit awkward. Employees today have far more rights than slaves of first century Rome, even though those slaves enjoyed more freedom than the chattel slaves in North America. Example, you can quit your job today without fear of receiving the death penalty, assuming your job is not in the mob. A slave in Rome could not. 
It still remains, however, why didn't the New Testament writers launch a full frontal attack on the institution of slavery? Piecing together all the New Testament has to say about this, there are a couple of possible reasons for this. First, it could be the New Testament, and in the New Testament uh, church, slavery was seen or fell under the category of tolerated but not endorsed. Tolerated but not endorsed. And I think there are two other instances of this in Scripture. The first instance is food sacrifice to idols. In Acts 15, Jerusalem leaders wrote a letter and sent it to the new Gentile believers in South Galatia, telling them to abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols. Yet, five years later, writing to a different Gentile church, Paul said, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. One uh, New Testament writer, uh, scholar, argues this. However, this paradox is explained. Paul apparently tolerated the injunction to abstain when he was promulgating the Jerusalem decree in AD 50 in Syria, Cilicia, and South Galatia. But his directions to another of his Gentile churches in AD 55 showed that he did not endorse this item of the codicil in that new setting. That is, he accepted the eating of food that had been offered to idols as necessary at a particular time in a particular circumstance without being able to endorse it in principle. So eating food sacrificed to idols or abstaining from uh, eating food sacrificed to idols would fall under this category of tolerated but not endorsed. A second instance of tolerated but not endorsed is divorce. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees claim Moses commanded the husband to give his wife a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus responds that Moses had merely permitted divorce. The Old Testament law's legislation did not reflect the original divine ideal of permanent one-fleshness, but was a non-normative concession to human hardness of heart. Matthew's two exception clauses show that in the, the early church, Divorce continued to be permitted, but only on the ground of adultery. Now, Paul has an additional exception of abandonment. So we may therefore say that according to the New Testament, divorce is tolerated, but not endorsed. That might be one reason why the New Testament writers never launched a full frontal attack on the institution itself. There's a second possible reason the New Testament writers didn't launch a full frontal attack on the institution of slavery. When you think about, when you think about their condition within society, how they were perceived, the fact that they were despised, the fact that they had very little cultural influence at all, one could say that any public attack on the institution of slavery would have exposed the early Christians open to the charge that their religious teaching was merely a front for social revolution. Their evangelistic mission, if that was their approach, their evangelistic mission would have thereby been seriously compromised. In a society where Christians were viewed unfavorably, the early church knew that their evangelistic mission had to be louder and more visible than their desire for social or cultural revolution. 
And by playing it this way, they remained somewhat undetectable to pagan authorities. And as we'll see, they end up eroding the institution from the inside out. Now let's talk about Philemon as it relates to this complicated uh, phenomenon in the first century. Think of Philemon as a case study in how God designed institutional sin to be eroded. As readers of the book, we do get the overwhelming sense Paul wants Philemon to forgive Onesimus and set him free. That comes through pretty loud and clear. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So the advanced in years, experienced, respected Apostle Paul declares to Philemon, Onesimus is his child. Are you going to re-enslave the Apostle Paul's child? I'm sending him back to you, Paul says, and then adds, I am sending you my very heart. Now, if you're Philemon, are you going to enslave the Apostle Paul's heart? Paul's rhetorical strategy is brilliant. Rather than nakedly commanding Philemon to do what he should do, Paul establishes a fertile groundwork so Philemon can connect the dots himself and make the decision Paul wants him to make. Paul is eroding the master-slave relationship. How is he able to do that? Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. In other words, Paul is saying Onesimus has become a Christian. He ought no longer be your slave because he's your brother in Christ. You see what Paul's doing? And craftily so. He is undermining the discriminatory hierarchy of social relations that is at the heart of slavery and putting the institution itself in jeopardy among Christians. While it's a time-consuming study to undertake, it is my belief this is what the New Testament teaches in regard to institutional injustice. Murray Harris summed it up when he was studying the topic of slavery in the ancient world and how the church related to it. Here's what he said. He said, Christianity in its essence is concerned with the transformation of character and conduct rather than with the reformation of societal structures. Its primary focus is on individual ethics within the Christian community rather than on corporate ethics within society at large, on interpersonal relationships rather than on social reformation through institutional change. The principal change sought is in the individual and the secondary in society through transformed individuals. If there were a thousand examples of the Philemon Onesimus story unfolding throughout the Mediterranean world, Paul would have handled it just like he did here. And because of the gospel's potency and implications, a thousand slaves would have been set free. Personal conversion is the linchpin to cultural renewal. This is precisely why our evangelistic mission must be louder and more visible than our efforts at social revolution. 
I know I talked about this story at length in January. I talked about the Welsh revival, but you know, illustrating is the hardest part of preaching. <laughs> and there are only so many of them that are any good. Back in January, I told you about the, the Welsh revival. 100,000 Welsh were converted. 100,000 Welsh were converted. The effect on Welsh society was undeniable. And there are two very specific examples that are, people talk about and have talked about since then. The first, the first uh, implication, the first effect of this was output from the coal mines famously slowed. You ask, what does that have to do with revival? Well, the horses wouldn't move. Miners who were converted in the revival no longer kicked and swore at the horses, and so the horses didn't know what to do. And second, judges had to close their courtrooms because there was nothing to judge. Personal conversion is the linchpin to cultural renewal. Personal conversion is the way institutional injustice is subverted. Second, the mending of relationships. The pursuit of reconciling the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus takes a certain path forward. I want to make some observations about this path forward. It begins with a third-party plea that's conducted by Paul. As we'll see with powerful clarity, Paul is assuming the Jesus role in this relationship. Paul is the mediator, the advocate. And because his life intersects with both Philemon and Onesimus, Paul obviously feels compelled to initiate the plea for reconciliation. Sometimes, this is important, this is practical for you, it takes a third party to get involved, to initiate Someone closely connected to the two parties that are at odds. Someone who knows the two parties well. So there is in this a mutual responsibility we all have to ensure conflicted relationships are restored. Sometimes two at odd parties need to be nudged by a third party. Now this communal approach to mending the relationship is graphically seen in this very interesting tidbit about this letter. Though Philemon is the recipient of this letter, though it is personal correspondence between the Apostle Paul and Philemon, the expectation is that this letter be read within the gathering of the church. How do you know that? Well, there are both singular yous and plural yous that are directed at the church in this letter. Paul is gently but persuasively exhorting Philemon to reconcile, and he's doing this publicly. So just imagine being Philemon that Sunday morning. The letter came in, and it's addressed to Philemon. But in it, you have this very clear appeal the Apostle Paul is making to Philemon to forgive Onesimus and mend that relationship and just change the status of it. So you're flaming. You've got a gathering of 20, 30, 40 other people around you. What are you going to do? Now, this is not Paul being manipulative. It's not Paul trying to back Philemon into a corner. This is how he did life. Mending broken relationships is a communal responsibility. What third party, what third party, what third party are you in someone else's relationship? 
Now, there's a second ingredient that contributes to this delicious dish of amended relationship, and that is Onesimus' conversion to Christianity. This is what ultimately prompts Paul to get the ball rolling. In his mind, it's as if two Christians living unreconciled is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And Christians, and only Christians, have the resources to mend the relationship at all. When an unbeliever becomes a believer, they become a brother or sister. They become family. So Paul's strong suggestion to Philemon that Onesimus is now more than a slave, but a brother exemplifies the point. In other words, Paul is saying, brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. Third, Paul has already lauded Philemon's love for all the saints. Did you notice how he laid that on pretty thick? Your love has been known. It's been observed. It's refreshed my heart. (laughs) It's highly regarded, Philemon. Your love for the brothers and sisters is highly regarded. Paul heard about this all the way from Rome. Well, Philemon, your love for God's family is strong. Onesimus is now one of us. Will your love extend to him too? Love for another believer. Paul is saying, look, love for another believer trumps the Roman justice system. Forget about that. Forget about that. Fourth, forgiveness comes at a cost. Now notice Paul doesn't tell Philemon to forgive and forget. (laughs) He does not tell him to forgive and forget. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So he acknowledges the debt's been incurred. Forgiveness always comes at a cost. We we can think about this practically by considering monetary debts. You know, you've got got guests over to your house and one of them breaks a china dish, assuming you use china dishes. Maybe it costs $50 to replace. They've incurred a $50 debt. Well, if if you let them... If you let them pay to replace it, you get your dish back, and they're out the $50. But if you forgive the debt, the debt doesn't just disappear. If you forgive the debt, you absorb the debt, either by paying to replace it yourself or living without it. This is true of non-monetary debts as well. When someone wrongs you deeply by gossiping about you or talking poorly about you behind your back or painting you in the worst possible light to others. A debt has been incurred that will never just vanish. One way to deal with the debt is to retaliate, finding ways to hurt them back. But when you do that, you make them pay the debt. The other way to deal with the debt is to forgive. But when you forgive, you pay the debt. You bear the loss that results from all the nasty talk that took place behind your back. Whenever someone is wronged, a debt is always incurred, and that debt doesn't just vanish. It doesn't go away. It has to be paid, and Paul knows this. He knows the debt Philemon is stuck with is real. It it can't just be willed away. A male slave in that day could be valued as much as $150,000 in today's figures. And Paul says, I know you incurred a debt. I'm not telling you to forget it. I'll pay it. I'll pay it. See, whenever you see a genuinely mended relationship, a reconciled relationship, you can be sure forgiveness happened. Without forgiveness, there is no genuine reconciliation, by the way. It's fake. It's fake reconciliation. If there's no forgiveness, if forgiveness was not asked for or granted, there is no reconciliation. 
Fifth, notice that in getting involved in the mending of the conflict, it will always cost you. (laughs) Paul's getting involved and it's going to cost him. In, In some ways, literally, it's going to cost him. Materially, it's going to cost him. Paul's not the one in conflict with either Philemon or Onesimus. He's good with both of them. But by getting involved, it's going to cost him and it will cost you. But that's the shape of the gospel lived life. That's what it's like to inhabit the gospel, not just believe it. Because it costs Jesus. We see that in the last point, the embodying of the gospel. As I mentioned, Paul plays the Jesus role. Paul, notice this, Paul wraps Onesimus in his own righteousness. He wraps Onesimus in his own righteousness. Look at the way Paul refers to Onesimus. My child, my very heart, receive him as you would receive me. Charge that to my account. So Paul is paying Onesimus' debt and wrapping him in his righteousness so that Philemon will receive him favorably. This is a picture of the gospel. If you're a converted follower of Jesus Christ, you are the beneficiary of this. There's another place where Paul writes. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Paul is saying God made his son Jesus to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me put this differently. Through his debt-paying sacrifice on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he lived your life so that you could be treated as if you lived his life. Paul says to Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. (laughs) Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus says to the father, receive Brian as you would receive me. Receive Jenny as you'd receive me. Receive Sam as you'd receive me. There was a TV detective show, one of the litany of them that have been on over the decades that depicted a story of a man in his 80s. He was ex-military, but at this point in his life, very broken down, apparently guilty of a crime. And you had uh, two rather buff military police officers and a nasty Navy lawyer come to arrest him. And they're treating him harshly, you know, speaking rather crudely to him, barking orders, when suddenly one of the, the ex-military, this old man's friends, reaches over and pulls away his tie. And there is revealed the Congressional Medal of Honor, which he had won decades before at Iwo Jima. And at the sight of the medal, the, the lawyer and the MPs snap suddenly to attention and salute. They are not saluting him personally, of course. In himself, he might be a criminal, and in many other ways, is certainly a failure. But for sake of the medal, which represented not only his sacrificial deeds, but the valor of hundreds of others in military service over the centuries, 
He was treated with honor. That's just a foreshadow of what happens to us. In ourselves, we are broken down, guilty people. But at an exorbitant cost to himself, Jesus drapes the Medal of Honor with all the rights and benefits that come with it. Jesus says, I know you've incurred a debt you can't possibly pay. But it's been charged to my account. I paid it. On the cross, I paid it. Your debt is forgiven. But there's more. I have wrapped you in my righteousness. You are my child, my very heart. And I have said to the Father, receive him, receive her as you would receive me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the deep, deep, deep and powerful truths of this book. God, first of all, we want to continue to plead with you for revival, not just in our community or our country, but the world. Every one of us has a longing to see everything that's wrong with the world be made right. Lord, sometimes we're quick to settle for counterfeit ways we think that might be accomplished. In the end, God, it's about changing people at the root. And that can only happen with an encounter with Jesus, your son. And so we pray for more of those. We pray that you would raise the dead to life, that you would wrap them in the righteousness of your son, Jesus, and you would change them from the inside out. We thank you for the way in which the gospel is so powerfully and vividly on display in this short, obscure book. Lord, you have, through the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, you have allowed our debt to be paid. That we, ourselves, may be wrapped in the righteousness of your Son. Lord, there's no greater blessing than that. I pray we would respond with wholehearted devotion, obedience, and worship of you. For the glory of Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.